All right, everyone, if you want to return to your seats, we're going to get started with this morning's message from God's Word. And we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Acts entitled Authentic Church. And we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And as you're doing that, just to remind you of what this sermon series is about. And the basis for this sermon series, Authentic Church, is that Christians, churches like sheep, often go astray. And that what many people think church is and ought to be is often defined more by their past experience than the word of God itself. By the grace of God sometimes and by the mega great grace of God, sometimes there is great congruence between what the Bible says the church is and ought to be and your experience. But I think we also know that there can be a significant divergence between what the Bible says the church is and ought to be and what you and I have experienced in the life of the church throughout our own lives. Sadly, some people would even say that their experience in the church turned them away from Jesus Christ. I couldn't think of a more horrendous and appalling statement. And while we all know some people just have an axe to grind, some people when they accuse the church and they accuse Christians, really what they are doing is blame shifting getting the focus off of their own personal sins and failures and onto others. That definitely happens. And it is often the motivation and even the content of the criticisms leveled against the Christian church. And we should be aware of that. However, it would be the pride of pride, height of pride and arrogance to deny that there's never any truth to such criticisms. I know that many of us here, we've discussed our experience in churches. I've discussed what it was like growing up as a pastor's kid my whole life. And to see how damaging it can be to the walk of a young believer. To be the, in the assembly of those who claim to know Christ. And yet in their actions towards others, they are far from him. Sadly, one of the great errors, sins even, that the Christian church has made, and when I say that, I mean local churches. One of the great errors that they have committed is to enable and create cultures of hypocrisy. As we look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we're going to be looking precisely at this particular problem this morning in a message I'm entitling, The Danger of Hypocrisy. So let us turn now to God's Word, Acts 5, 1 through 11. We will read this passage, pray over it, 
and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes. For so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would grant us a spirit of reverence and fear. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, (coughs) by the working of grace on the human heart, we pray that we would see that the place in which we sit and stand is holy ground. As you spoke to Moses from the burning bush to take off his sandals, Lord, may we take off the sandals of pride in which we stand. May we humble ourselves. May we be reverent before you. Though we may not know what it is you are going to say in these few moments, may we already confess now, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Lord, if there are calluses around our hearts, through sin, through unbelief, through hypocrisy. Perhaps some of us have so numbed our conscience that we think this is a message for somebody else. 
But Lord, we pray that you would grant us humility to see if there is any wicked way in us. To see if there's any way in which we contribute to a culture of hypocrisy which robs your name of glory. And we pray that not only we hear, but we would receive this morning. We pray that we would be changed. And whatever radical changes we need to make in our lives, in both our thoughts and our actions, we pray we would be able to begin anew and afresh today, this day. As the scripture says in various places, Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your hearts as Israel in the wilderness when they tested me. Soften our hearts, Lord, we pray. I commit this message to you and to your grace and to your care for the glory of your name and the benefit of your people. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. So I'm calling this morning's message, The Danger of Hypocrisy. The Danger of Hypocrisy. I think many people, if you were to ask them, what are the worst sins you could possibly commit? They probably wouldn't begin with hypocrisy. Perhaps you begin with murder. That's pretty bad. Maybe adultery. That's pretty bad. Maybe stealing, that's pretty bad. Maybe using the Lord's name in vain, that's pretty bad. But I wonder how many numbers on your list we would have to employ before you arrived at the sin of hypocrisy. And yet I want to show you this morning that this sin of hypocrisy is no small thing. The sin of hypocrisy is devastating. And it devastates any and every individual's walk with Jesus Christ. It'll absolutely derail it. Hypocrisy will destroy a church. And ironically, if a church founded on the cornerstone, if hypocrisy grows in number, then ironically, while people cheer and clap, they are doing more damage to the body of Christ than before. The worst thing that can happen to a hypocritical church is for them to grow in number. For what they will do is create disciples of hypocrisy. And make no mistake about it, the Lord would have rather have a church of 12 or 3 if it be a pure and authentic church than a church 10,000 strong, each of which are falsifying their walk with Jesus. Hypocrisy is that bad. But what is hypocrisy then? Because one of the reasons people might not think it's that bad is they haven't defined it as being that bad. So what is hypocrisy? I want to give you two definitions. 
The first one's going to be a cultural definition. It's, it's the one most people probably think of, both Christian and non-Christian alike. And then I want to follow it up with what I'm calling a biblical definition. Now, it's not against the cultural definition, but what you're going to see is the cultural definition is insufficient. It needs to be rounded out and informed by the Word of God. So what is this first cultural definition? By cultural definition, hypocrisy is pretending to be something you're not. That's what hypocrisy is. That's not a terrible definition, especially if you're talking to people who do not accept the Bible as God's Word. And we all know, if we're going to communicate with people, you have to have a shared language, correct? It's awfully hard to communicate with a person you don't speak the same language. And what Christians need to understand is we probably have to have multiple definitions of words. You're going to have to have a cultural definition, a cultural understanding of words. If for no other reason, you will not be able to communicate effectively with non-Christians. So we're not talking about lowering the standards of the Bible. We're not talking about abandoning standards and definitions of the Bible. But we are talking about being effective witnesses. And step one is, I need to understand what you mean by the words that you use. And so the world basically means, by hypocrisy, pretending to be something you're not. Now sometimes, to be sure, the cultural definition is not just different or maybe insufficient and requires some filling out. Sometimes it's contradictory. And in those cases, as a Christian, in humility and love, we will need to assist, insist upon a redefinition of terms. If the world's definition of a term is literally the opposite of ours as Christians, informed by the Bible, then we cannot really go further on down the road in that conversation until terms are defined. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but language and the meaning of it is changing faster ever than in all of human history. Has anyone noticed that? It used to be the case that words would be standardized. And dictionaries would report on the standard use of language. And it didn't just report descriptively, which it did in one sense originally, thinking of the Oxford English Dictionary. But it was also prescriptive. It not only described the ways in which words are commonly used, but it prescribed them. If you think about the British Empire and how it was in terms of landmass, the greatest empire the world has ever known. How did it work? Well, let me tell you this, as much as people get into all the nitty-gritty about how they were able to do it, let me tell you the most basic thing they had to have in order to make it work. Standardized language. If you don't know the words and you can't communicate, you can't have a civilization. So there will be times in which words have become so radically different, even contradictory, we will need to insist upon a conversation about redefining terms. Be aware of that. But there are other times, as a matter of fact, there might be quite a few, in which the basic cultural definition is not antagonistic to the biblical definition. And I would say hypocrisy is that. Hypocrisy is certainly not less than pretending to be something you're not. 
So the world is on to something when they say that. But as I've said, it is insufficient. And if you don't have a biblical definition, hypocrisy will never make the top of your list of sins to be avoided. And so now I'm going to give you a biblical definition that is not only faithful to what the Bible as a whole, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, teaches about hypocrisy, but it's going to enable you to see how bad and destructive of a sin it is in order to avoid it at all costs. Here's the definition. Hypocrisy is a lust for something other than God which is then hidden under a guise of holiness. Let me say that again. A lust for something other than God, which is then hidden under a guise of holiness. Now you might be asking, well, where did I get that definition from in Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11? Well, if you didn't notice, Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11 is not a discourse or treatise in hypocrisy. It is a story. In other words, what we have in Acts 5, 1 through 11 is not a dictionary definition of it. We can piece together this biblical definition of hypocrisy as a lust for something other than God, which is then hidden under the guise of holiness throughout the Bible. The teachings of Jesus in particular in the Gospels. What Paul teaches in his writings. What Peter teaches in his writings. What James teaches in his epistle. And what I'm going to show you this morning is, though this is a narrative, a story, it affirms this definition of hypocrisy that I'm offering you this morning. But let me begin by addressing this question, is hypocrisy really that bad? I mean, of all the things, you know what I mean? There's so many problems in the world. Surely we should be dealing with other things first. Well, one of the most obvious things, if you start with this text of Acts 5, 1 through 11, how does God take hypocrisy? Two people dropped dead in the early church. It's the first sin addressed in the early church. Think about that. Of all the unsanctified aspects of the early primitive church in Jerusalem that God could have addressed, and surely there were many. We do not look back on the early church and assume that they were already dead and resurrected and glorified and perfect. No. They were sinners saved by grace, no different than you and I today. They were not righteous and pure because of their own works, but rather they were righteous and pure judicially, legally, because God had declared them in his mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ and the promise of the Holy Spirit. They were not perfect people. Hypocrisy was not the only sin in their lives. 
but you see that their gratitude and their love for Jesus shined brighter than whatever sins they had. That's the beauty of the early church. It's not that there were no sins there. There's never going to be a church you're going to go to, this one or another one, where there's not going to be any sin. You're hoping to go to church that's already in heaven, and you're not going to get there until you die. If you want to be a part of God's people today, that will always mean being a part of a group of people who still sin. But what we can all aim for is what the early church at Jerusalem demonstrated, that the love and grace of God shined much brighter than any sin among them. And that's what I hope for our church. It's what I hope for any Christian church. You know, I know some people when they go to a new church and it's like a honeymoon, right? You're newly married, person can't do anything wrong. And then you spend time there and you see people sin. You see their grumpy parts. You see their idiosyncrasies. You, you just see faults. Faults, by the way, are not necessarily sins. There's limitations, right? Like if you're forgetful, is that a sin? Is it sin? To be, un to be forgetful? Well, I suppose it could be if it is the result of not prioritizing other people over yourself. But does the human brain sometimes just malfunction a little bit? Does it just not work? Do you ever have headaches so bad I just can't remember things or I just don't sleep for days at a time and I, I can't remember for the life of me what I said to you the other day because I, I'm barely having trouble? I mean, does that happen? I think it does. And sometimes we treat faults like they're sins. That's actually a sign that we're not gracious. If we start treating people's faults like their sins, we're not being gracious. And even when we see sins, how should we respond? We're not overlooking sin. We're not hiding it. We're not certainly not endorsing of it. But we are making sure that we never deal with somebody else's sin in hypocrisy. So I just want to highlight for you that God did not judge sin in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira by the penalty of death because it was the only sin going on. That would be an unbiblical, untheological assumption. But I do want to say it was a grave sin threatening the shalom of the early church. Now, some of us might read this, perhaps many of us, maybe all of us, would read this story and the first thought you're thinking is, man, that's a little harsh, isn't it? I mean, they both dropped down dead. I mean, good grief. I mean, I hope that doesn't happen today. <laughs> like, that's certainly not what I'm praying for. I prayed over this message today. I prayed that all of you would receive it today and God would transform you. But believe me, I didn't pray that any of you would drop down dead. Even if you're guilty of this very... I don't want anybody to drop dead. That This does seem to be a harsh penalty. But let me just remind you of two things. And I'm not going to smooth over this like this isn't radical, or otherwise we'd actually miss the point, wouldn't we? But let me say this. First of all, we're, we're forgetting that the Bible teaches all sin is worthy of death. The difference is when and how that death is paid out. 
That's the only difference. Secondly, there's actually the flip side. Though God seems, from the human perspective, to have judged this hypocrisy extremely harshly, the typical problem is the opposite. We're all wondering why he doesn't seem to do a darn thing about hypocrisy 99% of the time. Isn't that funny? The same person who might be upset that God's judged hypocrisy too harshly might be the same person that says, oh, I don't go to church. Church is full of hypocrites. They're everywhere. And it's like, well, which is it? Do you want law or grace? The penalty of death seems harsh because it says something about the effect of hypocrisy on the purity of the early church. So it should raise our awareness of how bad this is potentially in our lives and in the lives of our church. Now, once again, maybe you're still not tracking with me. I, I don't care what you say, Pastor Mike. That's too harsh. God is being too judgmental. Well, let me follow this up with, once again, how bad is this? Notice verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Who does Peter say was the ultimate source of the hypocrisy in Ananias and Sapphira? Satan himself. This is not just a quirk, a mere fault. This is a sin, Peter says, is instigated by no less than Satan himself. This is Satan attempting to destroy the early church before it has the chance to extend the gospel to the whole world. That's worthy of reflection. Satan's strategy was always to destroy the people of God. And to be perfectly honest, he is very, very effective at doing so. Remember in the beginning when God made the world good, 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 good. It was perfect. Placed Adam and Eve in the garden and Satan came in. And he stole God's people away. Throughout the story of the Old Testament, God creates a nation to be a light to the nations through whom the Messiah would come. And time and time again, Satan perverted the community. Finally, Satan thinks he's going to end it all. When he gets Jesus, the seed of the woman, the one foretold who would crush the head of the serpent, which is Satan. The one who would be the one and only true and faithful Israelite who would keep all the law of God on our behalf and die the curse of the law on behalf of those who deserved it. And he thought he had him on the cross. Satan says, this time I've got him. The community of God can never flourish because I finally killed the Messiah. But the story of the early church was the opposite happened. At the very moment in which Satan seemingly accomplished his greatest victory, God exposed his greatest defeat. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
defeating both sin and death. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, created a new community, like the community of Israel in the Old Testament, like Adam and Eve in the garden, but better. Because they were filled with the Spirit of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. A benefit, a blessing, and a promise, the New Testament tells us, was never given to the people of God at large before Christ. But do you think Satan gave up after Jesus rose again from the dead? Well, 2,000 years of church history certainly have shown that he has never given up. And we see here that his first effort in which he threw everything he had at the church, when Satan thought to himself, how can I best destroy this church? We already saw persecution coming, and what did that do? Purified the church, focused the church, and grew the church. Persecution's never desirable, but don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing in the economy of God. It can actually cause the body of Christ to grow, to thrive, and to flourish. But his greatest attack was saved for this moment. If Satan could penetrate the primitive church with hypocrisy, he could destroy it. He could destroy it. And if that's what's happening, and if what's happening is of cosmic significance, and it is about the eternal destinies of men and women, if it is about the cosmic battle between God and Satan himself, then it makes sense why this was so important. And if we don't understand what was at stake, then yes, we're going to render a harsh judgment upon God's activity. But if we understand what was at stake, then we understand why it happened the way that it did. There's an interesting connection being made here in verse 2 where it says Ananias and Sapphira quote kept back the money those two words in English kept back are one word in Greek and it is the same Greek word used in Joshua chapter 7 verse 1 if you know the story of Joshua 7, verse 1, you will know the story often titled in your Bibles as a heading, The Sin of Achan. If you don't recall the story of the sin of Achan, let me summarize it for you briefly because the author of this book through the Spirit, Luke, is making a connection so we understand what is happening. In Joshua chapter 7, Israel has been led out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They've been yetted to Yahweh at Israel. They have become his bride, his covenant partner at Israel. Moses has since died, for even the greatest of God's leaders in this world are sinful and fallen. And so even the great Moses... A leader we could only hope to aspire to, yet his sin rendered him unable to enter the promised land in which he was leading Israel for 40 years. Joshua assumes the mantle of Moses. Israel's facing a superior force in the 
soldiers and the people of Jericho. And one of the things the Lord says is that the victory is going to be mine. You're not going to fire a shot of the arrow. You're not going to need to do anything. I'm going to give you the victory. Only obey and be faithful. And part of the command to obey and be faithful is not to take any of the treasure, the accursed things, for themselves. Israel goes. Israel obeys. Israel marches around Jericho seven times. The walls come down and God does what he said he would do and he grants them a great victory. And Joshua and many of the Israelites are rejoicing. And it looks like, wow, it's just going to be victory and victory and victory from here on out. Because the Lord our God is mighty. And so they set upon a lesser city than Jericho. The city of Ai, which humorously in Hebrew means dump heap. It was a little place. It was so little the scout said, you know what, Joshua, don't even bother Sending all of our soldiers. Just give us two or three thousand. This is an easy one. We could do this with one arm tied around our backs. Humanly speaking, this is far easier than Jericho. But something strange happened. As they went up to this dump heap that they should be able to conquer in their sleep, they are thrashed. And they run away screaming and fearful for their lives. Joshua is confounded. How could this happen? It can't be God. God destroyed a much mightier city. We didn't even do anything to earn it. And, and God keeps his promises. I've, I've seen it up to this point. What happened? And God revealed... There is sin in the camp. And that sin has affected everybody else. And it was revealed to Joshua that it was the sin of one man who cost all the congregation. Achan, when approached by Joshua, confesses that he kept back. Same Greek word used here in Acts 5.2. He kept back from the Lord that which he was supposed to commit to him. Joshua receives the confession, but the penalty for Achan was death. After the death of Achan, the anger of the Lord ceases and the blessings on the community of God's people are revived yet again. We are being told here that the individual sin of hypocrisy can bring disaster on a whole community. I think obviously that's true for leaders. But I don't think a lot of people realize that Aiken was not a leader. In this particular instance, and there's certainly many instances of hypocrisy amongst leaders throughout the Old Testament, so that's notwithstanding. But what many people don't realize is that their sin, just a church member, maybe doesn't have a role of leadership, doesn't have a teaching position, is not prominent, maybe 
lot of people don't, they're not sure if they're really a member or they're here and there. What we're being told here is that the hypocrisy in the life of one can bring spiritual harm on a whole church. That's how bad and serious hypocrisy is. It is the kind of thing that, like leaven, which Jesus used in connection to the sin of hypocrisy specifically, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven, you need just a pinch of it in a large bowl of dough, and it'll permeate the whole thing. Hypocrisy is a leaven that Christian individuals, every man and woman here today, is being called, summoned, and commanded to root out in your life today. Hypocrisy is a grave sin. Now, I've referred to biblical examples, but let's just think about our experience. Think about your own experience. Think about what people say to you. What is one of the top, if not number one reasons, people say they will not go to church? Too many hypocrites. Why aren't you a Christian? Is it because I haven't argued for the, the veracity of the Bible? Is it because I haven't argued for this and that? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a greater danger than even many of the false ideas and arguments that are out there, and I'll tell you why. Some false ideas merely affect the intellect. Hypocrisy not only impacts the intellect, but the heart. It can actually create a repulsion of the things that are holy because it is such a deeply personal and relational experience. Hypocrisy is that bad. Now, why would anyone want to be a hypocrite? Why would you want to do that? We're actually shown in this story the, the heart process, the reasoning process of why a person would even want to be a hypocrite. Because there's got to be a reason, right? I know it does become automatic. It can become a habit for people. But originally, at least, there was a process. Why would you want to do that? What we see here in this story is a comparison between Ananias and Sapphira and the story of some of the leaders in the community at the end of chapter 4. As we discussed last week, when the Holy Spirit was moving, it created such a spirit of gratitude and generosity and love for God and acknowledgement that every good thing and every blessing is not ours, but it is God's and we are but stewards to whom we will one day give account. And they didn't just say that, they did it. And the people who had extra, more than they needed, voluntarily, without any rule, without any law, without any tax mandated, simply desired, and I would argue out of joy, gave above and beyond what they were required to do. We have an example by name highlighted. His name was Barnabas. 
Barnabas did this out of joy in his heart for the love of God. No doubt, not in hypocrisy, but in humility, seeing how God had given him so much more in Christ that what was this but little to give back the proceeds of the field he had sold. And right after that story is the one before us, contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira. What they are doing follows what was being done by Barnabas and these other leaders. And so it gives us insight into why they would have wanted to do this. In all likelihood, Ananias saw the generosity of Barnabas and the others and the honor bestowed on those who gave all their proceeds. And he desired that same honor. Because make no mistake, when you love the Lord with all your heart, when you give radically and generously, you stand out. And the way to climb the ranks in the church, I'll just tell you what the secret is. Anyone here who wants to be great, become the servant of all. Ask not what the church can give for you, but what you can give for the church. That's the secret. It's an open secret, but that's the secret. But there are those who desire the honor that is given upon those who genuinely want to sacrifice themselves for Christ. He desired it. Because the truth is, we all care about status. We all care about position. We all care about what status and position might do for us. If people believe I'm this great, this, that, or the other, that will make me feel good about myself. That might get me some things done that I want to get done. I might get my name in lights. I might get preference when it comes to this. I might be able to have access to that. And people begin calculating the benefits of what it would like to actually be holy and sanctified. But with hypocrisy, because Ananias loved money more than the Lord, he was not giving to God, but to buy a name for himself. That's ultimately what Ananias was doing. Because don't mistake the fact, Ananias did give something. He did. He gave part. And as I highlighted, he didn't have to give anything. Either before he sold it or even after. So this isn't just a lie. This is hypocrisy. He wanted to look like Barnabas without having to love Jesus like Barnabas. He wanted to look like the community of those who sold and gave radically and generous to God without the sacrifice itself. He desired the honor, but because he loved money more than he loved God, he decided to withhold the money and deceitfully gain honor and hope nobody would notice. We too should ask about all our serving and giving. Why are we doing what we're doing? Is it really for God? Or do we get something out of it? Dare I say, I think 
most Christians, if not all Christians, in their walk with Jesus, because none of us is perfect. We're being sanctified. Much of our giving and our serving is self-serving. It comes with strings attached. Many people today, and by the way, and this is sad, churches are built on this, and this is my humble criticism of the seeker-sensitive movement. Are you building your church in this giant building and these acres of property and these wonderfully talented bands and the light show and the, the life-size Noah's Ark and the petting zoo? You know, like, is all of that built on teaching people that they're buying something with their giving? You can tell because people will stop giving when they are no longer getting what they're paying for. Sacrifice to the Lord does not sit there and calculate, what am I getting back? Do I get to do this? Do I get this position? Will you paint the building this color? Will you make sure this person is doing this and that person is not doing this? Many churchgoers are much like Ananias and Sapphira. When they give, they are not giving to God. They are buying something for themselves. And some people in their minds, they're, they're, there's this insidious way of rationalizing and affirming that. I've heard ministers rationalize why that's okay. It goes like this. I know most people are selfish. And the only way they're going to give or serve is if they get something back. And I even know that's wrong. But with their selfish giving and serving, we might be able to reach the lost. That's the rationalization. Now, while it's true that God can use filthy lucre, things that people intended for the wrong reasons and the wrong things, and he can still accomplish his good purposes. Thank God for his sovereignty and grace. Amen? Amen. Thank God when people do stupid things, including pastors, do stupid things. Thank God he is sovereign and gracious, and he can still get done what he wants to get done. Thank God that when a leader stumbles, Christ never falters. Thank God. But just because we thank God for his gracious sovereignty is no excuse for human sin and failure. We cannot simply say the ends justifies the means. Oh no, friends. I trust all ends to God. For I control nothing. And he controls everything. But what we are responsible for is the means. Who will we be when we give and serve? How will we give and serve? Why will we give and serve? And is there any leaven of hypocrisy at all in our giving and serving? We need to take responsibility for the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. We need to not presume upon God's grace that although normally he almost never does this, and normally seemingly just lets it go and grow. Let us take responsibility 
and say, Lord, is there any wicked way in me? In all of our doing of good works, and keep on doing it, I hope nobody quits doing good works today. But ask yourself, as the character Kazin, the guardian of the grail in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade said, ask yourself why you seek the cup of Christ. Is it for his glory or for yours? We are to seek the glory of Christ. Now, if we can accept that hypocrisy is a grave sin and danger in the church, and that if we don't deal with it, it'll destroy churches, it'll destroy the reputation of Jesus Christ. It'll poison the Christian experience of many churchgoers. If we can confess that, then what is the cure for hypocrisy? And we're told twice in verses 5 and 11. The cure to hypocrisy is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Notice after both times that Ananias dies, it says, and the fear of the Lord came upon them. And then when Sapphira died, it says, and the fear of the Lord came upon them. The way out of this is we have to fear the Lord more than we fear anything else. Because hypocrisy preys upon the fear and concern of men. What will people think of me? Will they think I'm really holy and righteous if I do this? Will they think I'm bad if I do that? And because people are what we see with our eyes, we tend to care more about what they think than what God, who we can't see, but with the eyes of faith, we tend to disdain God's opinion of us. But as Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you're taking notes, and even if you're not, write down Hebrews 4.13. Because the fact is, God sees every wrong thing about us right now. Every wrong thing we hide from other people. And human sinfulness is such that we even hide our own sin from ourselves. How crazy is that? Hopefully this isn't you, but have you ever met a liar who believes their own lies? A prideful person who thinks they're humble? All things are known, visible, laid bare before God. And it is better to live that way now, brothers and sisters, than to die and realize this for the first time face to face. We will give an account for how we live our lives. Yes, are there consequences for confessing sins to people? Absolutely. Is there consequences to being a gracious, authentic church where we don't fake like we're better than we are? Yeah. Because the sad reality is many people want fake churches. Botox church. They, they want it to look like it's all this and that, but it's not. But even at the risk of losing people because we're real and authentic, we must pursue it anyway. Because holiness, not popularity, 
is the calling of God on the Christian church. Amen. Now, I realize that this is kind of a heavy message. But I want to reassure you, it ends with good news. The gospel is that you and I are known fully and completely to God already. The reason anyone is a hypocrite is because they're scared that people will find out who they really are and they seek to hide themselves. The gospel is you are already known fully and completely. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every horrible thing you've ever done, you are doing, you will do, not only in your actions, but the things you wanted to do and didn't. And yet he loves you anyway. The gospel says you are far more loved than you ever dared imagine. And our sin is greater than we ever confess. God knows us as we are. And he is not waiting for us to create an excuse or to lie or to get a fig leaf and cover ourselves. Rather, he's saying, Mike, Mike, <laughs> precious child, let the little children come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly, that is exactly what Jesus is highlighting, a little child is unpretentious. They'll just come to you and sometimes say things you're like, I can't believe you just told me that. That's how Jesus wants you to run to him today. If you're 95 years old, in your heart spiritually, run to Jesus as though you were five. Knowing that he is a father who knows every wrong thing about you and he loves you and he adores you. And the good news is this. Hypocrisy is actually a burden. Do you think anyone can be a hypocrite and truly be happy? I think hypocrites are miserable. And I think the only happiness a hypocrite can find is in putting other people down. the good news is we don't need to think anything with Jesus. And the way you embrace this grace, that God loves you just as you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. Our response to this grace, which we don't deserve, is to live authentically before our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what I hope from this message is this is not just a pep talk I hope that this is a way of life that becomes a culture of image church. Not only in the time that I'm here, but beyond my time, that this would be a church through all the years when people encounter it, they know this place as a place of authenticity and grace where hypocrisy is rooted out as a tremendous evil 
and authenticity before a gracious and loving God is not only celebrated, but offered to our brothers and sisters in their faults and sins as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your truth. Lord, I thank you that though our sins be as scarlet, yet if we embrace Jesus Christ and his cross, we will be washed white as snow. Lord, I pray that as Jesus warned his disciples to not be hypocrites like the Pharisees, he said, make sure before you remove the speck in your brother's eye, you remove the plank in your own eye. And I just pray right now as we respond to you in singing and praise that the Holy Spirit would search our hearts. See if there is any wicked way in us. Try our thoughts. Know our hearts. Reveal to us any sin of hypocrisy. And if it is there, Lord, let us confess that sin. Let us confess the ways we live it out in our relationships with others. Let us see it for the sin that it is. And let us be lovingly and gracious towards others the way that we are received by Christ. We ask for this blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.